Today we're beginning the book of Zephaniah, and yes, that's a real book in the Bible. Zephaniah, let's go to chapter 1, and you can also stick a finger over in 2 Kings, because we're going to be looking at that this morning as well. If you need a Bible, as always, we have a bunch back here on our resource table. Please grab one of those. Zephaniah chapter 1, as I think most of you are aware, we're currently in a study called The Hidden Prophets. This is where we've been for the better part of this year, and um, we are now making our way into the second half of this series. And so let's begin this morning by reading this text, Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, I will utterly sweep everything away. From the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests, and on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. The word of the Lord. All right. Zephaniah chapter 1. We're picking up uh, in what is the first of the exilic prophets. We finished the pre-exilic prophets a couple of weeks ago. Today we begin the exilic prophets, and one of the things that you will notice is that these books start to get a lot shorter. Um, We have been in books like Amos and Hosea that have 10, 11, 12 or more chapters. From here on out, with with really only the notable exception of the book of Zechariah, most of these books are going to be very short, two, three chapters, and so they're going to be coming very fast over the next few weeks. As we get into this today, just quick history lesson, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, right, and the southern kingdom of Judah, we talk about this all the time. For much of the pre-exilic prophets, we were looking at the northern kingdom of Israel and their wickedness, but now the northern kingdom of Israel has been conquered by Assyria in the year 722 BC. Assyria came in and carried them away into exile. And the reason why we call it exile is because that's exactly what it was. It was the practice of armies at this time, not to just come in and conquer and then rule over people. That's kind of what the Romans would do a little bit later, right? So during the time of Christ, the Romans are in power, but they're just kind of ruling over people. At this time, what armies like Assyria and Babylon would do is they would come in and they would conquer a nation and then they would literally deport people. They would literally carry people away to other parts of the world, other parts of the empire. Um, So our last prophet, Micah, 
was sort of a transitional prophet. Micah was declaring the word of the Lord in 722 BC, and so he saw the destruction of Israel. He was in Judah at the time, but he saw the destruction of Israel happen, and he said, hey, this could happen here as well. This could also happen for Judah. Today, we fast forward something like 80 years into the future from the time of Micah. It's a new century. It's now the 600s instead of the 700s. So we're still hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years away from Christ. The northern kingdom of Israel has been completely decimated, but Judah and Jerusalem are still standing. They're still hanging on, even though the Assyrians at times knocked at the door of Jerusalem They're still hanging on, and as we learn today, there is a new king in power. We're picking up during the days of King Josiah, and Josiah is a fascinating figure, and we can't talk about Zephaniah without talking about Josiah, and so that's actually where we're going to start today. Josiah was a boy king who came to the throne at age eight eight years old, after his father, Ammon, was assassinated. And Ammon was only in power for something like two years, and he was killed by his servants. So not a popular king by any stretch of the imagination. And both by uh, traditional, uh, like in our Bible, but also in other Jewish literature like the Talmud, uh, Ammon, this king who only ruled for two years, is viewed as being one of the most wicked kings in the history of of Judah. And he's known for being a wicked king because he allowed the temple to be used for all kinds of heinous things. He allowed the temple to fall into disrepair. Um, It was said that cobwebs were growing over the altar in the temple because it just wasn't being used in the worship of God, even though there were other gods possibly being worshipped in the temple. And it's even said in the Jewish Talmud, which is a book in the Jewish rabbinic tradition, that um, he perhaps burned the Torah as well. The first five books of our Bible, the books of the law, that perhaps Ammon set fire to those. But when his eight-year-old son comes to the throne, the stage is kind of set for reform, right? This king is gone. This young boy has not really grown up in his father's kingdom because he's been so young. And so 2 Kings 22, turn over there with me, 2 Kings 22 tells us a particularly fascinating story about a 26-year-old King Josiah. He's been in power for 18 years at this point, and that's where we pick up. 2 Kings 22, beginning in verse 3. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshullam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord. That's the temple in Jerusalem. The house of the Lord saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people, and let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. So this begins with Josiah sending a messenger to the temple with money that has been collected for the repair and refurbishment of the temple. And he gives instructions concerning the use of that money. Verse 7, But no accounting shall be asked from them, the workmen, for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. Now look at this, verse 8. 
Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahiakim the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Asiah the king's servant saying, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Isn't that a fascinating story? So 26-year-old King Josiah, the temple is in disrepair, right? His father didn't take care of it. There's all kinds of other uh, pagan worship, perhaps, that's been going on in it. It's, It's falling down. Josiah makes provision for the financial resources to be laid out for its that money's delivered to them. They begin the work of kind of redoing the temple. However, as that's going on, the workers literally find the book of the law. And, you know, it's not entirely clear which book of the law we're talking about. You know, the first five books in our Bible are thought of as books of the law because they are the Torah. We talked about this last week a little bit. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so it's not clear, did someone find the complete Torah or did they find, for example, the book of Deuteronomy, maybe? Um, what it tells us in Second Chronicles, where this exact same story is told, is that it was one of the books of Moses. So it would make sense it's one of those first five books of the Bible. And um, many, many scholars think, hey, it could have been just Deuteronomy as a standalone scroll. Either way, this gives us a really clear picture of the spiritual state of Judah, doesn't it? Right? That, That like one of the secretaries to the king comes to him and goes, hey, this book's been found in the temple. Let me like, let me read it to you. Let me read you what this says. The fact that the king in the land of, in Jerusalem, like where the temple of the worship of Yahweh God is, is not even aware of the existence of the book of the law, shows you like how, how much things have devolved in Judah, how far things have gone down the rabbit hole. It's a state where there's respect to some extent for the temple, Right? It's, it's a landmark of sorts. It's, uh, it's on the historic register, so to speak. Like, let's put some money into this to refurbish it. And yet, there's respect to some extent for the trappings, I think, of religiosity. But the actual word of God, the actual word of God has been sort of relegated to a back corner and has been forgotten. Isn't that fascinating that there can be all of this engagement with the place, like with the temple itself, and, and with, with all of this like religious accoutrement that might come along with that, and yet God's word has just totally been sidelined. <clears throat> 
The word that many scholars use when describing the, the religious state of Judah at this time is the word syncretism. Syncretism. And that word means something like the amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought into one thing. So, so the idea here is that like the religious culture of Judah was one where all of these different and seemingly antithetical religious and cultural ideologies had come together to form this like murky soup of public faith. Right? That, that to some extent, the people had just cherry-picked from the Canaanite religions and from Hebrew religion and from all of these different cultural influences from other nations and had brought this all together into the culture of Judah. Syncretism. Um, so it's a world where the worship of Yahweh, which was still going on to some extent, somehow combined with the worship of gods like Baal or the god Milcom, who was mentioned in our text today. It's a world where the temple would get used for all kinds of religious practices, but what's going on could best be defined by the word sacrilege. Sacrilege. And that may not be a word you use often, but, but it means that it's, it's what happens when something sacred is used for purposes that deny its sacredness, right? It's being used for purposes that are perhaps antithetical to its sacredness. It is sacrilege, the complete misuse of things considered to be sacred. A great example of syncretism, to, just to help us wrap our heads around this, is to think of American food. What is American food, right? I, I know what Mexican food is. Right? And I know what Chinese food is, and I know what Italian food is, but what's American food? Right? American food is this amalgamation of a bunch of other cultures, right? Like we have something called Tex-Mex, which isn't Mexican food, right? It's this Americanized amalgamation of different things. And, and it creates a whole new thing, doesn't it? Like you can maybe see where things have come from or the pieces of other cultures or other food types that have been brought in. But now it creates a new thing that in and of itself to some extent is, is indistinct. Like, like there is something that very much characterizes the the food culture in France or in Italy that in no way characterizes food culture in America because it's not something that is like fully native to us in the way that those food cultures are. It's something that has come from all of these different places. And, and, and so that's sort of the outcome of syncretism. It is like this indistinction. Everything kind of becomes murky. Everything becomes cloudy. But Josiah reads the book of the law, he realizes that the nation is not living by its precepts, and he begins this process of instituting sweeping reforms in Judah. And many scholars believe that he was perhaps greatly influenced, unlike prophets in the past, perhaps greatly influenced by the preaching of this guy Zephaniah, right, who we don't know a lot about. But let's look back at our text here at the beginning of Zephaniah's book. Like many of the other prophetic books, this is a book of Hebrew poetry. And it begins with just a brief description of who Zephaniah is and the time frame that he's speaking into. Most notably, verse 1, Zephaniah is perhaps a descendant of Hezekiah, 
who, if you remember back during the time of Micah, was one of the righteous kings in Judah. He was one of the ones that also instituted sweeping reform and um, set about this new course seemingly for Judah. And so there's some, some great lineage here for Zephaniah, if this is in fact King Hezekiah we're talking about here. Um, let's look at verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So this is almost like going back to Genesis 1 and watching it in reverse in a way. It's like God saying, I'm just going to strip this house down all the way to the studs and rebuild. Now, with Israel in the north, remember, that had already happened to some some extent, but the exception was the studs weren't even there anymore. Like, the people had just been completely scattered. They had been taken away from their lands totally. But with Judah, and we'll see this more clearly next week, God's intention was not total annihilation, or total exile, or total destruction. God's intention is actually purification. In many ways, the story of Judah is the same as the story of Noah, the book of Genesis. The land was just nothing but wicked, and sure, God could have just wiped out everybody, could have you know, kind of shaken the etch-a-sketch and started over, but instead what he chose to do was preserve a remnant of people who would be the ones who would, in a sense, start over. And that's what happened for Judah when they were later conquered by Babylon in 597. So about 20, 30 years after the time of Zephaniah and after the time of Josiah. They weren't destroyed completely. They weren't scattered completely. Instead, they were carried away into exile. And yet, in exile, they remain a distinct people group. And that's significant. Israel in the north, it wasn't as if everybody was killed by the Assyrians. That's not what happened. Many were carried away, but what happened was their culture completely disintegrated. Their distinction as a people group dissolved. And that shouldn't be surprising because the north had literally abandoned the thing that made them distinct, which was the worship of Yahweh God. It was Hebrew worship that made them distinct as a Hebrew people. But what happened was over time, they became far more identified with the Canaanite gods than with Yahweh God. And then once the exile occurred, they intermarried with all of these other people groups to the point where there, was, there were no longer any cultural or ethnic markers that would identify them as the Hebrew people of God. So in other words... Their practice of syncretism had completely eroded their culture to the point where when they were conquered, any uniqueness that they had just evaporated. But, but not so for Judah. Look at verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs, to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, 
Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. So much like the prophets before him, Zephaniah is calling the people to recognize that the day of the Lord is coming. Like, it it is coming, and it's closer than it's ever been. And on that day, the Lord is going to cleanse the land of Baal. He's going to cleanse the land of these Canaanite gods. He's going to cleanse the land of wickedness, he says. He's going to cleanse the land of idolatrous priests, like false priests, false prophets. And he says, those who bow down to the heavens, like those who are literally like worshiping the stars in the sky or the planets or whatever, And this is textbook syncretism, again, someone who treats both the one true God, right, and a carved piece of wood as if they are the same thing. Somebody who swears by the Lord and yet somehow swears by Milcom, this Canaanite God. Like, we've seen this before, but but there's this, like, how can that even be true? Like, how can that even be the case? If you know who this God is... If you know what he's like, then how can you also embrace this piece of wood, right? It just kind of defies logic, and yet that's exactly what's happening. It's one thing to just be like an outright pagan. It's another thing to try to combine your paganism with the worship of Yahweh God. That just seems kind of crazy, and yet our culture today is incredibly adept at this very thing that we're talking about. America in 2021 is incredibly syncretistic. And much of it's veiled to us, but when we start to add things to the gospel of Jesus, that like Jesus plus other stuff type thing, And the gospel itself gets diluted to the point where, in some cases, it's not even recognizable anymore as the gospel of Jesus. Even though some of the same language may get used, even though it still may be called gospel, it's not recognizable if we're reading the scriptures and we're talking about the teaching of the Christ. And so I want to wrap up this morning by just pointing out two different forms of syncretism that I think we see in our country today, in our world today, but particularly here in America. And, um, and then we're going to wrap up. Next week, we'll dig into this a bit more in Zephaniah. So the first form of syncretism that I think we've seen, uh, especially over the last year, two years, is Christian nationalism. Um, and that's a bit of a nebulous term. And I think people disagree on how best to define it, but, but we'll, we'll define it today as amalgamating an American political agenda with the practice of biblical Christianity. Just real simple, amalgamating an American political agenda with the practice of Christianity. So, so we're not talking here about being somebody who loves America. That's not what we're getting at. We're not talking about being somebody who's patriotic. Uh, We're not talking about being somebody who's a Republican or a Democrat or a conservative Christian who wants Christian values to be at play in our world. No, we're talking about something else. There's nothing wrong with those things. We're talking about something that defines obedience to God as strict adherence to certain Christian-ish political positions rather than strict adherence to the biblical teachings of Christ. 
strict adherence to Christian-ish political positions rather than strict adherence to the biblical teachings of Christ. And probably the most obvious and extreme example of this would be something like the Klan, right? Like if, if you studied the Klan in school, like what kind of imagery did they use, right? They, they used crosses, and they carried Bibles at times. And if you've ever read any of their propaganda, a lot of it was biblical in nature in that they would invoke Scripture And yet it was completely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? I think we would all recognize that. Something we've seen more frequent or more recently, rather, um, was the capital insurrection and the way that Christian imagery, Bible verses, were also used in that event, supposedly following Christ. Russell Moore, who at that time was president of the Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, said that he saw a Jesus saves sign displayed next to a gallows that had been built built by the rioters on that day. He said, I was enraged to a degree that I haven't been enraged in memory. This is not only dangerous and unpatriotic, but also blasphemous presenting a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ that isn't the gospel and is instead its exact reverse. Walter Kim, president of the National Association of Evangelicals, perhaps said it best when he said, certainly I love our country and as the son of immigrant parents, I am deeply grateful for the hope this nation represents, but as a Christian, my highest allegiance is to Christ. So if your highest allegiance is to Christ, it has to be the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Scriptures, not some Americanized Jesus, not some Jesus who has been altered to hate all the same people you hate, but the Christ that is presented to us in the Scriptures, the counter-cultural Jesus whose primary aim was not to make some human nation great, but whose primary aim was to usher in a kingdom through his death and resurrection. Not a Roman kingdom, not an American kingdom, but the kingdom of God. It's what he talked about ad nauseum. Just go read the Gospels. Everything is about the kingdom. The parables are about the kingdom. Kingdom where even though we are all sinners, we can all be reconciled to Christ through his body and his blood. Not through a president, not through a particular political agenda. Those things cannot save you. Caesar cannot save you, right? Only the person and work of Christ. But when gospel language, Christian language, when biblical language gets applied as a veneer over that kind of agenda, and the message is in order to be obedient to Christ, this political agenda must take place, then we are adding to the biblical gospel. A second form of syncretism I think we see in today's world that is equally insidious and deceptive is uh, what we could call New Age spiritualism or what sometimes is called Christian Buddhism, 
um, which is increasingly becoming common. It's a pretty mainstream thing in America today where a person can somehow be spiritual and yet not religious. You've heard this. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And I understand why somebody would say something like that, right? Where where I can be kind of Christian-ish, but I'm not Christian. Uh, Religion in many sectors is kind of a dirty word, isn't it, for many people? Like religion, I think, evokes the work of man. It makes us think of abuses and problems we've seen in the church, sexual abuse, leadership failures, bullying, ostracism. Many people see that as the natural product of religion. But in the strictest sense, religion is about worship and community. It's about people coming together in community to engage in the worship of God. When we talk about religious practices, ideally we're talking about practices that are meant to be communally engaged for the worship of God and his only son, Jesus. And there are many people who don't want to have anything to do with the church or with worship, but who want to engage in quote-unquote spiritual practices, which are most often influenced by other world religions, namely Buddhism. And unfortunately, the result here can be an extreme self-centeredness. Like it's, it is fully focused on me. Where spiritual practice is only about you and you becoming a better person or a less anxious person. Where that's the only real aim. Often evoking Christian imagery or the name of God in the process And yet it's devoid of the biblical gospel. It's devoid of the great commandment, in many cases, to love our neighbors in the way that we love ourselves. So it's taking a Christian-ish foundation, but then amalgamating other religious practices into sort of your own personal religion where you are the God. Or maybe Oprah's the God, I don't know, right? This is actually a form of Gnosticism, which is one of the earliest forms of Christian syncretism that we see historically. After the time of Christ, uh, Greek pagan mythology and this gospel of Jesus came together in the ancient world to form this sort of new syncretistic religion called Gnosticism which in some ways is kind of hard to define. It took on many different forms, but it was this blend that created this whole new thing that was all about gaining secret knowledge through spiritual practices. April DeConnick, who's a professor at Rice in Houston, says that Gnosticism proposed that human beings were manifestations of the divine. You heard that before? I am God, you are God, we are God, the earth is God. That human beings were manifestations of the divine, unsettling the hierarchical foundations of the ancient world. Subversive and revolutionary, Gnostics taught that prayer and meditation could bring human beings into an ecstatic spiritual union with a transcendent deity. That if you would engage in deep spiritual practices, that you can reach this ecstatic state where you are now one with God. Does that sound like anything you've ever heard of before? So long before Buddhism even existed, there were some very similar ideas that were taking place in the ancient Middle Eastern world. And so it's no different than saying, you are God or we are God. 
And it's much like the spiritualism we find in today's world. In many ways, it is a form of Gnosticism. So as we begin the book of Zephaniah, as, as has been the case with all of these prophets, we're picking up in a world that is not all that different from our world, right? We're picking up in a world where the, the presenting problems may be different, and, and yet the larger overarching issues are the same. For us, there is a discomfort that we feel when we encounter the true and explicit gospel of Jesus. Like whether we want to admit it or not, there are things about it that make us uncomfortable. There are things about it that are mysterious in nature. And so the more that I can insert myself into the story, the more that I can insert my works into the story, the more comfortable somehow I get with it. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but whether we're talking about Christian nationalism or we're talking about New Age spiritualism or other forms of syncretism, what's ultimately happening is I'm abandoning the worship of God in favor of the worship of myself and the worship of what I think is best or what the culture at large tells me is best. In some ways, it can be a worship of the mainstream culture. And it can seem so minuscule. Like, it can seem like such a small deviation. But I really think it's this thing where if you're traveling down the road and you just turn your wheel slightly, you just merge and, and you suddenly get farther and farther and farther away from the road you were on to begin with. And then you wake up one day and you, you, can't even, you can't even figure out how to get back to where you were. So what's interesting about this is some of these practices are not evil. Like if we're talking about New Age spiritualism and we're talking about something like meditation, meditation is not an evil practice. We talk about Christian meditation all the time, right? But when meditation becomes a way for me to somehow become one with God... For me to almost achieve godlike status, albeit in my brain, then we've deviated from the Christian gospel, which is a gospel that says you cannot become one with God through any action of your own. Like you are separated from Him, and there is nothing you can do. No amount of good deeds, no amount of saying I'm sorry, no amount of being a kind person, no amount of spiritual practices, no amount of meditation, no amount of trying to connect mentally or spiritually with the one true God can reconcile you to Him. The only thing that can do that is the body and blood of Jesus Christ, given freely for you as a sacrifice. And like the step that we take that we can only take by his grace is that step into faith. Like our prayer of the day we prayed earlier today said, without you, God, we cannot please you, right? Without you, we cannot please you. So without God stepping in, without him intervening, without him extending grace, without his empowerment through the Holy Spirit, we are powerless, And yet there are competing ideologies out there that would tell you, no, 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 you are powerful. And if you embrace your true power, like if you embrace your true self, 
then you can find happiness and you can find contentment and you can find peace and you can find joy. These things that we all long for. And yet the Christian gospel says you will never find that in yourself. You are the reason why you lack contentment and peace and happiness. The only place that can be found is in Christ. And for whatever reason, I'm way more comfortable thinking that I can do it than I am in thinking that Christ can do it. It seems more tangible to me that I could work really hard and get there myself. But the reality is, is it can't happen. And if I'm real honest with myself, I know that's true. I know that I'm a screw-up, right? I know that I can't do everything right, right? So as we begin to dig into Zephaniah, we jump into this world where the people are doing the exact same thing, and yet with a king who wants to see things change, who wants to see reform, who wants to see people turn back to God. So next week we're going to continue on as we look at Zephaniah's prophecy and the warnings that come from that. So let's go to God in prayer this morning. Let's reflect on maybe some of the things that he said to us through his scripture today and consider the ways that possibly we are enticed by some of these things we're talking about. Where we're enticed to put our faith in ourselves or in our work or in our ability or our intelligence instead of Christ. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this group of friends who you bring together every week to worship you and for the encouragement that comes from them. And I pray, Father, that you would help us today as we seek to live our lives in front of each other and in front of our neighbors and our coworkers as true gospel people. Not as people who are caught up in strange conspiracy theories, uh, not as people who are caught up in extra-biblical gospels that, um, that would proclaim that happiness comes from something other than Christ or contentment or joy comes from something other than Christ. Father, what are the things in our lives that tempt us in that direction? For some of us, it could simply be cultural Christianity to to play the religious game and yet not truly make Christ the Lord of our life, the center of our world. Father, would you open our eyes to the things that potentially lure us away from the real gospel? Give us eyes to see them, Father, and I pray that we would get the log out of our own eye before we talk about the sin of others. God, may you make it abundantly clear how we as individuals and as a church should repent. Father, may it be impossible in our lives to, to cry out to you and yet also to cry out to material possessions as if those are things that could fix us or save us. Help us to not fall into this trap of swearing by you and yet swearing by some other God we've made. 
Father, encourage our hearts. Give us a hope and a peace and a contentment through the gospel of Jesus that because of his body and blood, because of his sacrifice, that praise the Lord, a way has been made for us to truly be reconciled to you. We praise you today, Father. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.